Greetings and welcome to Mind Matters News. This week, our guest host, Michael Egnor, sits down with the founder of Theology Unleashed, Arjuna Gallagher, to discuss a number of topics from a Hindu perspective, including the nature of free will, the origins of the universe, and modern issues facing social ethics. Enjoy! Welcome to Mind Matters News. Uh, this is Mike Egner. Uh, I have the privilege today to uh, have as my guest my friend uh, Arjuna Gallagher. Uh, Mr. Gallagher uh, is from New Zealand, and he is a Hindu. Uh, and he has a uh, YouTube channel called Theology Unleashed, uh, which is uh, a wonderful channel uh, that uh, I listen to a lot, and I encourage our listeners to check it out. Um, he discusses uh, in, in a very profound way uh, many topics in theology and science and culture, and he's had some great guests. He's had David Bentley Hart, uh, Graham Oppie, uh, Mark Tan, Mark Solmes, who's a neuroscientist, uh, Matt Dillahunty, who's an atheist, James Fodor, a philosopher, Stephen Barr, who's a Christian philosopher, Aaron Ra is an atheist, uh, and um, I've had the privilege of being on uh, Arjuna's uh Theology Unleashed uh, YouTube channel as well. It's a great channel. In addition, Arjuna has done a wonderful documentary entitled The Persecuted Saints You've Never Heard Of. Uh, it's an intriguing story about uh, a um, monastery of Orthodox monks uh, who uh, were persecuted because of a theological position that they took. Um, when I started listening to it, I couldn't stop listening, listening to it. It's a fantastic documentary. Please check it out on Arjuna's channel. So welcome, Arj Arjuna. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Um, I don't know a lot about Hinduism, and I would suspect that many of our listeners uh, don't know a lot either. So uh, what is Hinduism? So the word Hinduism uh, is often misused as if it describes one religion, but really it's a category of religions. Um, I was recently listening to Dr. Howard Resnick, who was on a, a Muslim interfaith dialogue podcast, and he explained that comparing Islam to Hinduism is, is it's a it's a category mistake. Well, we should be the, the accurate comparison would be the Abrahamic traditions to Hinduism. Like I, I was on their podcast a few weeks earlier, and they were saying, "Oh, the problem with Hinduism is every village you go to, everyone has a different belief." It's like, well, Hinduism for a lot of people is is an ethnicity. They grow up in this culture. There's foods, you know, it includes the the ritual aspects of the religion. Um, but if you actually look inside the traditions of what these what is taught in these traditions, you you have a diverse set of belief systems uh, taught in different traditions, and a lot of them will be very specific about what they believe. So, I'm a member of a tradition called within the tradition the Brahma Gaudiya Vaishnava Sampradaya, uh, and that's a change extending back at least claimed by the tradition all the way back to the beginning of the creation of this universe. As, as that's the claim that's made, but we have recent uh, appearances of prophets and incarnations of God all the way back to 500 years ago. If you were to describe um, central themes that, that, are, that are held by most, if not all, Hindus, uh, what, what might they be? Yeah, so you do get a lot of diversity, um, but the things that, that are common are an acceptance of the Vedas as authoritative. So the Vedas are, you know, just the Rig, Yajur, Sama, Atharva Veda, and there's also the Puranas and Itihasas and so on. Um, and the beliefs would be cyclical time. So all Hindus are going to believe that time didn't have a beginning. It doesn't have an end. 
there's periodic creation and destruction. Uh, so everything's always existed, but sometimes it appears and sometimes it doesn't. It's, it's, it disappears or is destroyed. Some of them are going to believe that there's an eternal spiritual world, which is never destroyed. It's, it's, it doesn't have a, a day or a night, so to speak, although it has a day, no day or night in the sense of destruction or annihilation, I mean. I, I'm not super a super expert scholar on the differences within the various Hindu traditions. Sure. Okay. Do you do you do you believe that God is personal? So you, you this is a big debate which has gone on within Hindu traditions for thousands and thousands of years. Uh, the personalism and impersonalism debate. Uh, so the followers of Adi Shankaracharya they take a more impersonal view. Uh, and it's it's very much like uh, Buddhism, whereas the Vaishnavas they have a very personal view of God, uh, and that that's w- what I'm a, a follower of. If if God is not personal, um, I, I I I do know that uh, Hinduism generally in, involves a notion of karma and a, and a notion of reincarnation and a notion that people uh, are sort of uh, compensated for their uh, good or bad behavior in future lives. If God isn't personal, um, how are their lives judged? I mean, how how does how does good and evil come out of uh, an, uh, an understanding of God as being impersonal? That's a good question, and and that's an argument you could offer against the impersonal views. They they kind of have a mechanistic idea that uh, it's karma is just a, a material mechanism that goes on all on its own. But of course, there's problems with that because to execute karma, you need to be tuned into incredibly subtle nuances of a person's motivations and intentions. And it's hard to think how something that lacked personal features could be that tuned into personal qualities. Indeed. Uh, what what does Hare Krishna mean? Uh, I I hear it a lot. So we're, we're called and we call ourselves Hare Krishnas because th- th- those are, that's part of the mantra we chant. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Rama Hare Hare. Uh, these are names of God and the idea is that by associating with God's name, we become purified because God is all pure. And when we associate with God, we become pure. So we chant these names all the time. Uh, the names are quite unique because they're in the vocative. In Sanskrit, you have different, you have more... Um, more grammar, more, it's more flexible. So the vocative is how you call out directly to someone. Other mantras are in uh, are more offering respects from a distance, but these, this is a direct call to the divine. The sense that I have of uh, Hinduism, and I think that our, a lot of listeners will have as well, is that um, th- there certainly is is a pantheon of gods. There's there's a lot of different gods. Generally speaking, or even in the uh, view of Hinduism that uh, that you ascribe to, what role do those gods play? Are, are they? Is it really pantheistic, or is there one overall god, and these other deities are beneath that god? Uh, so there's many Hindus who will believe in something that's that's rather pantheistic, or some think that uh, all these different demigods are equal and you can worship any one of them and get the same result. And the result is that it's, it's just something that you can temporarily fix your mind on until you're advanced enough to fix your mind on the impersonal absolute, which is beyond all these forms. Uh, so this is not the Hare Krishna view that, uh, or any, no Vaishnava subscribe to that view. The Vaishnava view is that God's a person and his name, form, pastimes are all fully divine. So when we meditate on those things, we're advanced. As for the demigods on the Vaishnava view, they are something like archangels, perhaps, or 
I'm not super expert on the Christian theology on on that aspect, but uh, they're like engineers which oversee the functions of the material universe. So there's even a demigod controlling the weather. Um, so every, everything in the material universe is conducted by a person. They're, they're powerful personalities and they're jiva souls, which means they're just like you or me and we could become a demigod in a future birth. Okay. Are, are they worthy of worship in, in, uh, the, in the Hindu faith? So in, in the Hindu faith, the, the Vaishnava traditions at least, yeah, no, in, in Hinduism more broadly, like the word puja is used. Uh, and the word puja will be used for uh, saying something like, you should honor your mother and father. Uh, so there's not this hard distinction or of, um, I mean, it's more of philosophical understanding. So offering respect you can do to anyone, uh, but it's the philosophical view with which you do that with, which is stress. So if I worship my guru thinking he's God, uh, that's that's wrong. But if I worship my guru understanding he's a servant of God and he's helping me come closer to God, uh, then that's fine. And there's also, and then we also res- re- uh, worship God. But it's it's yeah, it's not this hard distinction of a kind of honor you give to one or the other. It's, it's more about the philosophical understanding that's that's stressed. I see. Yeah, the in in the um, in the Christian view, or at least from from the uh, Thomistic view, which I think is is pretty mainstream, uh, angels are separated intelligences. They're they're they're. Uh, souls without bodies, uh, and um, they, obviously there, there can be good uh, angels and bad angels. You know, demons are um, are any of the um, members of the pantheon in the Hindu faith uh, demonic uh, as opposed to angelic. Yeah, th- there are um, demons, um, and they're always fighting with the demigods, and th- there's a tug of war back and forth. And you could ask a problem of evil question about that, and the answer that's that one answer that's given is that. The purposes for the demigods, they can forget about God, uh, but when there's trouble, then they're reminded and they go take shelter of God so that the demons serve that purpose. I'm sure you've heard of the Euthrypro dilemma uh, that was posed uh, by uh, by Plato. Uh, that um, it's a dilemma that uh, does is something good because God wills it, or does God will it because it is good? How does Hinduism look at the origin of good and evil? Is, is is the origin of good and evil something that just exists independently of of God uh, for, for for those Hindus who believe in a personal God, um, or uh, is good and evil uh, a command of, of of God? Yeah, so we don't have the same dichotomy of good and evil that you find in Christianity. Uh, what is discussed in the tradition is people becoming conditioned by the modes of material nature, covered by the modes of material nature and good qualities overcoming the bad, bad qualities overcoming the heart. So, uh, and then with the idea of karma, you don't get an idea of evil so much because everything that happens is serves a higher purpose. So it's analogy that's given is to the jail system. So sure. It's not good that there's a jail with prisoners in it. Uh, but the fact is that prisoners exist. That's that criminals exist. Uh, and because criminals exist, it, it's a good thing that the jail system exists because it, you know, let's hypothetically say the jail system is actually doing a good job at keeping criminals off the streets and reforming them. Uh, that's a great thing. So everything in the material world serves the purpose of elevating conditioned souls from their conditioned state, giving them a chance to try to express their selfish desires, for, become frustrated, and ultimately turn back to God. 
the the issue of reincarnation often comes up uh, in discussions of Hinduism. Um, what are your beliefs on in reincarnation, and what do you understand to be the sort of g- general belief of of uh, most Hindus? Yeah, so uh, reincarnation would be another one that almost all Hindus, if not all of them, would would ascribe to. Um, you'll get differences, of course, with the impersonalists who think that we don't have separate souls that they'll. They'll think maybe you know something's going from lifetime to lifetime, but eventually an illusion will be be dispelled, and you'll realize that you're one with everything, and you don't have a separate identity. Uh, the Vaishnava view, uh, which yeah, Harry Krishna is, is one form of Vaishnavism, is uh, very much personal. That the soul has always existed, will always exist, and can transmigrate among any n- number of forms. Uh, and this human form of life is a special opportunity to turn back to God. One of the criticisms of, re- of reincarnation is that it it, it tends to, uh, it, or it, it seems that it might encourage uh, a sort of callousness, a sort of sense that if a person is in the particular life he's in and he's he's in a bad state, he's he's had a lot of problems, he's suffering, that it's because of what he's done in prior lives and he kind of deserves it. Um, is that an is that a, an accurate? way of looking at reincarnation and at uh, ethics in Hinduism? That's a common objection Christians will give to using reincarnation to solve the problem of evil. The trouble with it is is it's a misunderstanding of of a few things. Uh, One is this idea of personal responsibility that the idea of karma and reincarnation brings is supposed to be personal responsibility, not blaming other people. So what I mean by that is there's there's a difference of how we view ourselves in light of particular philosophical points and how we view other people in light of philosophical points. So, you know, a common example of that is how the guru sees himself is very different from how the disciple sees himself. If the guru sees himself the way the disciple does, uh, then he's not a qualified guru. Um, the guru is supposed to be humble. Uh, so similarly with with this karma thing, like a, the common argument will be given that it actually has happened, I believe, that a Hindu has seen a starving child and thought, this child is starving because it's their karma. If I feed them, then I'll be depriving them of their karma, so I better not feed them. Uh, they have this karma, and it's there to teach them certain lessons, and I better not get involved. What this misunderstands is uh, the, how I view what happens to me is, is karma. So I see things that these that what happens in my life is meant to teach me lessons. And uh, you're probably well aware that in psychology, this attitude makes people incredibly resilient and improves the quality of their lives immensely when they take personal responsibility rather than victimizing themselves and blaming others and externalizing all their problems. Uh, but then how I should view other people is based on dharma, and so dharma, uh, one way we can translate the word is duty. Another way we can translate the word is religious principles. So there's certain principles or, or duties that govern the way I, I act in the world. So, you know, I have children, so I have a duty to look after the children. And everyone has a duty when they see a starving child to feed the child. There's, there's certain duties that are based on my position in society and there's certain duties that are universal. So a police officer has a different uh, duty with regard to a criminal than a doctor. The doctor is supposed to treat everybody regardless of their criminal status, whereas a, a police officer is supposed to discriminate. I, I and we, we spoke about this a little bit earlier, but I um, certainly in the in the variants of Hinduism that don't believe in a personal God, it's awfully hard to to see where duties could come from. 
um, it, it certainly is evident where you could get a duty if uh, if the creator is personal, because the creator would then that would be the creator's will that you do that. But if there is no will and no person at the core of existence, then how could one properly be said to have a duty uh, rather than just you know, a desire? Um, where could duties come from in without a personal God? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Uh, unfortunately, there's not a lot of Hindus which have got into the realm of philosophy of religion. So it would be interesting to see how they would answer that. Like they might want to say they just exist necessarily. Like, you know, we say God is a necessary being. They might want to say these these duties are necessary. Um, I, I know some of your, of your uh, YouTube videos have dealt with uh, some of the um, testimony that people have given uh, that where they, they, they can recall prior lives. Um, how does that work and, 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 and how credible do you, do you believe that is? So with the evidence for reincarnation, in any particular case, you could doubt it. I mean, the skepticism can go too far where it's like this person is giving evidence for something that I don't think could be true because of you know, whatever prior assumptions about worldview. And if you just ignore all the pieces of, it, of evidence that are given which contradict your worldview, then your worldview is not responsive to evidence, but rather it's something you use to filter the evidence in order to make sure your worldview is never contradicted. Um, but where the real credibility comes in this evidence is when you pile a lot of it together and you start to see patterns. So if it's, you know, if if the cause of these evidences, of the evidence of that comes in the form of children who spontaneously report memories of past lives, if it's not caused by them remembering past lives, then we wouldn't expect it, the data to follow certain patterns uh, which would be predicted by past life remembrances being the cause. Sure. And in, in some ways, I, I see a bit of an analogy to near-death experiences uh, that you, know, you, you can write off quite a few of them perhaps as, you know, the effects of medications or of delusion or of deception or something of that sort. But um, there may be a core of them that seem to be veridical that, 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 you, you know, that, that you have to give some credence to. Um, the, a question would arise is how does one know if knowledge of prior lives is genuine as opposed to, uh, for example, demonic, uh, if, if, if there are evil uh, intelligences out there, because uh, that, that's been raised with uh, with uh, near death experiences, um, even the ones that seem real. How do we know where they came from? Yeah, I, I've debated this before, and one Christian was giving the argument that the memories were planted by a demon. But in philosophy, there's this problem called last Thursdayism, which is we can't prove that all of my memories of everything prior to last Thursday uh, are actually real. So the argument is, it's called last Thursdayism for obvious reasons. Um, but if you want to say these children's memories of existing in a previous birth were planted by a demon, then you're opening yourself up to the problem of last Thursdayism. You kind of need to give some amount of credence to memories in order to have a coherent worldview, which includes, you know, last year existing. Um, and as far as veridical aspects, uh, there are, so m many of the cases, there's no veridical aspect. Um, there's one researcher, uh, uh, her last name's Bowman. Her work has been on healing these children. So she'll do psychology techniques where she'll tell the parents to to talk as if this is real. So you were run over by a bus. That was a different life. That was a different body. Now you're in this life, and that's not happening now. 
And by talking to the children in this way, by, by explaining that their memories are, are real, but they're not there anymore, now they're here, they were able to release this charm and stop having a phobia of buses in this example. Uh, so there's an immense benefit in treating it as if it's real, but also the vertical aspect uh, comes in many of the, so yeah, what I was saying is many of the cases, those, there's no vertical aspect. You can't go and see if the life, if there was a child described that was run over by a bus that perfectly matches the same thing because they just don't give enough information for a match to be identified. But in many cases, a match is identified and it's often found that these children knew information that wasn't on the internet that only this person knew or only intimate family members knew. For instance, there was one case where the child uh, located a like buried, tre- I think buried treasure that he located, what one child located a gold coin, one child located in a drain on the property that nobody had noticed before. He'd, the previous personality had carved a name uh, and they'll, they'll also carry over um, birthmarks which, which match scars or wounds on the body of the deceased individual. And they'll carry over personality traits. So you're getting three different aspects of things which are carrying over along with uh, memories which are proved to be accurate for the life of a previous personality. So there's like a conflagration of evidence. Yes, it's absolutely fascinating. It's kind of interesting that um, in Thomistic philosophy, um, there, there's been the, the observation, as you pointed out, with the last Thursdayism problem, that is that how, how can you prove that, that there was even a last Thursday? And um, uh, the reality is, I think, if you drill down on it, that you're quite right. You, you, you actually can't prove the validity of any of your perceptions or any of your concepts, uh, because in order to demonstrate the validity of perceptions or concepts, you have to depend on conceptions uh, on perceptions and concepts so fundamentally this kind of radical skepticism is kind of unavoidable but then again nobody can live that way that is that we all believe that last thursday happened and that our perceptions and concepts have some basis in reality and what that gets down to is that everybody needs to have faith of some sort you have to believe in something that you can't prove and um, I've found this, I think, to be a very powerful argument against atheism, is that um, if you believe in theism, and particularly if you believe in a God who is rational and who is reliable, then your faith is grounded. Your faith kind of makes sense. That uh, I believe last Thursday happened uh, because God wouldn't let me be deceived like that. Uh, whereas if you're an atheist, you have no, you have no one to appeal to. That is, then you just have this radical faith that last Thursday happened and you can't prove it. Um, so in, in that sense, faith is, is the ground for reason. Uh, if, if, if Faith in God is the ground for reason. If you don't believe in a rational God, um, then you have no, no reason to believe that you actually know anything. Yeah, that's like the argument from reason. I quite like the way Sewis Lewis put it. I, I can't remember the exact wording, but it was something like thinking that chemicals smashing together in your brain could produce accurate knowledge. It's, it's like thinking you could disturb the contents of a glass of milk uh, and get it to splatter on a, a page and produce an accurate map of the world. <laughs> I think I butchered the quote, but you get the idea. Oh, yeah. No, no. And that, that, man, that's exactly right. Every, 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 everybody lives completely on faith. Uh, there, there is no certainty of anything. Uh, I actually believe that there's no certainty that we even exist. And that, that may sound crazy, but um, Descartes said, you know, I, I, cogito ergo sum. Uh, I, I, I think there, uh, there, therefore I am. Um, the problem with that 
perspective is that that depends on the therefore. That it, that is, it depends on logic. Um, it depends on the logical notion uh, that something can't be um, true and false at the same time. Uh, and we don't have any independent reason to think that logic is true. That is, that it may very well be that thinking doesn't mean that uh, that you exist if logic doesn't work. Uh, so you're still left with this radical skepticism. Uh, so we, we, we all have faith. There's nothing we can, uh, we can be sure of. But a, a faith in God is at least a rational faith. So it brings up an interesting topic. Yeah, that's kind of the argument from reason. I'd, I'd want to separate, distance myself from presuppositionalism. Uh, but I think the argument from reason, reason is interesting that, that we need to this idea that God gave us our rational faculties. But, you know, the counter argument would be that evolution produced our, our rational faculties. And I guess perhaps that could be debated. But I, I, don't, I don't think evolution can explain the existence of all of our rational faculties and our perceptions. On our last session, we talked a little bit about um, the evolutionary argument against naturalism. Uh, the the, the um, people who believe in evolution obviously believe in the um, reliability of their own ability to reason. Uh, that is, that, that they believe that they can logically understand uh, themselves, understand nature. Um, but um, a number of um, uh, philosophers and, and uh, theologians, particularly uh, Alvin Plantinga, have put forth an argument that if if our uh, our mind, our ability to reason, uh, uh, arose strictly through evolutionary means, uh, that we have no reason to trust it, uh, to trust our ability to reason as a way of ascertaining truth, because it evolved as a way to reproduce, a, a way to maximize the number of our offspring, not as a way to understand truth. So how do you feel about uh, the uh, evolutionary exp explanations for the human mind? One thing I want to say first off is that I think we can know that we have an ability to reason even if our worldview doesn't explain that. So uh, like we can have a, a self-evident understanding that I have an ability to reason as a first principle, uh, even if our worldview doesn't support that. So the argument for God from this, it's called the, in philosophy, the argument from reason, uh, would be that there's a contradiction between the worldview and the ability to reason. Uh, not that the atheist is unable to reason or doesn't know that they have an ability to reason. So that, that, that kind of uh, is a rejection of presuppositionalism. Some people might be upset by that, but a lot of people will be satisfied. Uh, so Donald Hoffman wrote, wrote a book called A Case Against Reality, where he argued that our that evolution, he thinks that evolution can explain us being good at math because there's survival advantages to being able to do math well, I suppose. I, I don't know if it explains being really good at hi, understanding highly abstract concepts because you can imagine the mathematician you know, that's pottering around being the one who comes and gets eaten by the bear because they're not paying enough attention to the outside world, right? Right. Well, it, it would seem to me there, there, there'd be a fairly simple way of testing the hypothesis that evolution was the source of our ability to do math just by uh, checking the um, 
reproductive success of mathematicians as compared to, say, for example, uh, rock stars. Um, I, I think that, I mean, the, 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 the notion that um, that sort of esoteric uh, mental activity makes you reproductively successful that doesn't seem to be too credible if you just look at the average uh, high school dating scene. Uh, so, I, uh, uh, you know, math, mathematicians are not reproductive superstars. So um, it's kind of it's hard to buy that argument. Yeah, the, the counter argument might be group selection, that a gene pool which is capable of producing these kinds of intelligences is better at surviving, even if the people with those kinds of intelligences don't have a better reproduction rate. Yeah, yeah, sure, you can make that argument, but but then that gets into the whole problem of group versus uh, group selection versus selfish genes, uh, that it would seem to be the... Uh, that that, that uh, at least within the population, that mathematics would be uh, a vanishingly rare thing because uh, everybody else would be reproducing at the because the mathematicians have conferred them benefit. Uh, so you get fewer and fewer math mathematicians as the generations go go along. But it, it be, you kind of get into a uh, what, what I think is kind of a crazy uh, Darwinist kind of way of reasoning that doesn't make too much sense to begin with. So um, from, from your perspective on uh, Hinduism, what, what is the metaphysical structure of reality? That's kind of a big question, but, but how does metaphysics work? So the Sanskrit word tattva is the closest you'd come to ontological category. It's a demonstrative pronoun. It's from the demonstrative pronoun tat, which means that. So that, when you convert it to a philosophical term, comes to mean things that actually exist. So it's categories of existence. Uh, and as that goes, you've got three broad categories, as you get in most traditions, which is God, the world, and the living entities. But then with the material creation, it gets a bit more complex. There's, there's, I haven't studied it for a while, but there's something like the Mahabhutas, and there's like 25 elements. One of them includes God, then there's all the way, there's various other stages, and you get down to 10 senses plus the mind. So the mind is counted as a sense. And then the material energy is composed of five elements, you know, earth, ether, you know, the, the standard five. And those five elements each have different qualities. And you go from subtle to more gross. So ether is the first element. And then you get air, I think fire is next, water, and then earth. And uh, they each contain progressively more qualities. And that there's one one idea you do get, which is you don't find in Christianity so much, I think, is this idea of subtle and gross. So there's more subtle energy. So, you know, there's, there's like the subtle body and the gross body. And the subtle body is carried from lifetime to lifetime. That includes impressions. So if you suffer trauma or, or whatever other experiences you have that leave a deep impression on the soul, they carry it into the next lifetime. So, you'll, you'll, you know, as anyone who's been around children is aware, they're, they're a diverse collection of personalities uh, that can't be explained by the differences in environments. So you know, I've got two kids and they're, all, they're both completely different from one another. And this is explained by the, them carrying over impressions from past lives in the subtle body. And then the gross body is, is something produced as a result of that. And there's the material universe, which is composed of matter. And there's the spiritual world, which is composed of sat, chit, and ananda, which is eternity, knowledge, and bliss. So it said that the, the qualities of this living entity, that the jiva, the jivatma, is such at ananda, just as God is such at ananda. So 
we're one in quality with God, but different in quantity. We're a tiny spark of the divine, whereas God is the infinite, absolute divine. Yeah, David Bentley Hart wrote a, a wonderful book on uh, that uh, particular topic, um, The Experience of God, I think. And, and he divided the book into those three topics uh, and pointed out that uh, although there are a lot of differences between individual faiths, um, they all seem to identify those three things as being central to uh, central to existence uh, and, and, and to, to be characteristics of God in, in, uh, in one way or, uh, or another. Yeah, it's called The Experience of God, Being Consciousness and Bliss. Right. Yeah, I highly recommend that book. It's really good. And you, you, uh, you had a chance to uh, interview David Bentley Hart on, on Theology Unleashed, right? Yeah, I've had him on twice. Once it was, it was just me interviewing him along with a, a fellow Christian. And um, yeah, it was, it was really interesting. He, he was a good sport. He's a fascinating guy, and he's a magnificent writer. I mean, he's, he's, a, he's a beautiful writer. I, uh, he did a, a wonderful um, book on the uh, problem of evil related to the um, uh, East Asian tsunami uh, back about 15 years ago uh, called uh, the, the Doors of the Sea was uh, the title of it. That was a beautiful reflection on the nature of evil and uh, theodicy. It was very interesting stuff. I haven't read that one. I'll have to check it out. Yeah, he, uh, he, he, he um, as, as I recall, his basic argument was we do not understand why evil occurs, that God is completely good, that there is nothing evil in God. We don't understand why evil occurs, and it's better for us that we don't, meaning that it's, it's a topic that is simply beyond us uh, and that um, our job is to try to help out as much as we can and to love God and not to blame him for evil. Uh, and uh, I, I found it a, a very thoughtful way, a way of looking at it. Yeah, sometimes you'll see people who've gone through immense suffering come to a realization that, that you know, they gain some immense wisdom, which they attribute to having gone through that suffering. And they come to some understanding that, that the suffering was necessary and the wisdom they got from it is so valuable that they wouldn't uh, trade it for not having suffered that suffering. But of course, oftentimes we're not out on that plateau of having come to that realization. We, we're having to employ a kind of skeptical theism where we have this assumption that God is all good and there's a higher purpose for all of this, but we're not able to see the reasons for it. There is a um, an analogy that I find very helpful in thinking about this. I you know I, I have four four kids, and um, uh, when they were babies, um, if you put them down to nap time before they wanted to go to take a nap, they would they, they would scream bloody murder. They would just they'd be very upset that they had to take a nap, and so they'd be standing in their crib screaming and you know. Um, and from the baby's perspective, this was like the worst thing that ever happened. But obviously, taking a nap is a good thing for them. Uh, but they they were just too immature; they were too young to really un, to really understand it. And um, but I understood it as the parent. And uh, the gulf between me and God, between me and and the ultimate reality, is infinitely greater than a gulf between a parent and a child. So, no matter how terrible something may seem in my life. Um, it's kind of like I'm that infant standing in the kit in, in the crib screaming, and I, I can't even really begin to understand why God lets this happen. But it doesn't mean that it's in the in the grand scheme of things not explainable uh, in a way consistent with God's goodness. It just means that I can't even begin to understand it myself. But that's my problem. The other thing is I've always considered the the problem of evil 
to be a very powerful argument for the existence of God. Um, atheists tend to use the problem of evil as an argument against the existence of God. However, um, if you acknowledge that evil exists, then you acknowledge that a moral law exists independently of opinion. Because when people say that things are evil, they don't just mean that it's that something has happened that they disagree with. It means that they think it's objectively wrong, that, that there is something evil about a child dying of cancer or a tsunami killing thousands of people. But if there is something objectively evil about that, then there has to be a source for that objective moral law by which you judge it to be evil. And that source can only be God. Uh, so I, I think the problem of evil actually presupposes God's existence. If God didn't exist, we wouldn't see evil as a problem. We would just have things that we agreed with and disagreed with, but we wouldn't ascribe any moral importance to it. Well, the, the atheist can give it as an internal critique and say, you guys believe God's all good. You believe in objective moral values such as that these things are wrong, and yet these things are going on. God's all powerful, therefore he could stop it, and he's not, so he can't be all good. Uh, that's an argument they can offer, but often when these people say these things, they genuinely believe that it is objectively wrong for these things to happen. And if they do hold to a kind of objective morality, then the argument flies. Uh, I've heard William Lane Craig describe that, and I think he was talking about this specific argument. Often there's, you know, there's two premises to the argument from objective morality to God's existence. And he's had, had one conversation where he was experiencing that when he talked about the first premise, the person would reject that premise uh, and rely on the second premise. And when you talk about the second premise, the person would accept that premise and reject the other one. Uh, that you know that so in this case, it would be uh, objective moral values don't exist. I'm just offering an internal critique. And then when you go over to talking about objective moral values existing, they're like oh, I do think objective moral values exist. I'm just rejecting the other bit. Right, right, right. Exactly, exactly. Uh, another point on the problem of evil is in the Hindu traditions, it, it never really came up, and I've often puzzled over that. Uh, and finally, I think it was Dr. Howard Resnick explained to me that it, it didn't come up because there was this bedrock idea of personal responsibility, thanks to karma and reincarnation. So the, the question didn't really come up as a, a serious philosophical question. It was other things were debated, and it was just a bedrock assumption that we had personal responsibility. And cr Christianity, I would argue, doesn't have the same thing to fall back on because well, the, the, real, the, the real thing that Christianity doesn't have, which we have with karma and reincarnation, is the ability to explain why this person and not that person. Uh, why me rather than someone else? Because with, with previous lifetimes, I can actually have respons responsibility that's genuine, not just, it's just, you know, the, the fiat will of the divine that some people fall here and some people fall there, and we just got to learn and grow from whatever we're given. Right. Yes, the, the, but the, the difficulty with ascribing responsibility based on prior lifetimes is that it, it very much pre presupposes a moral lawgiver, which, which certainly requires uh, a, a personal God. I mean, I, I don't see any kind of mechanistic, in any credible mechanistic way, how um, moral problems in previous lives could be punished in future lives or, or, or rewarded in future lives without a personal God. So uh, I'm not sure that, that Hinduism necessarily solves that problem. It, it, it just removes it one generation. Yeah, yeah, you still do, still do need God. I was doing a, a comparison between 
the Hare Krishna views and the, the Krishna views, um, there's plenty of views you could argue against using the moral argument that are, or using, you know, that the karma and reincarnation point can't be explained by plenty of other Hindu views which lack a personal God. Sure. Sure. It's certainly in um, with the modern debate between uh, the new atheists uh, and and Christians. Uh, there's a tremendous debate about the uh, existence and uh, reality of, of free will, and um, what what is the the perspective on free will in the in the uh, Hindu belief. So there, there might be Hindus that reject the existence of free will. It, uh, it's not something. I, it's not a question I've really pondered. Uh, in the Vaishnava traditions, free will is is uh, accepted as bedrock uh, and not questioned at all. I don't know if it's something that was debated much in the tradition. Probably not. Um, so yeah, we're we're free agents. We're, we're, I mean, it said there's five factors of action, so we're not a hundred percent free. Um, uh, I can't remember the list of five factors of actions. It's in Bhagavad Gita. One of them is the living entity. One of them is karma. One of them is God. One of them is the modes of material nature, which is actually another part of metaphysics we could get into. Um, so the modes of material nature are, are ignorance, passion, and goodness. Ignorance is um, suffering now and suffering later, like like a drug addiction. When the person's taking the drug, they think it's happiness, but actually it's suffering, like you know, getting drunk at a party or something. And then they suffer the next day too because with, with the hangover. Uh, happiness in the mode of passion is as ch chasing goals and happiness in the mode of um, goodness is it's well, one way it's described as it's happiness later. Whereas we do some benefit for now later, but uh, it sounds similar to passion when you do that, but the mode of goodness one is, is more, more peaceful and, and conducted. Um, so as for free will, it's we, we associate with the modes of material nature uh, by listening to certain things, hanging out with certain people. And that, creates a certain attitude in us that though we get covered by a particular uh, combination of the modes of material nature and then those drive our behavior. So people who are on alcohol are more likely to commit violence. Uh, this is caused by, the, by becoming more in the mode of ignorance. Um, so we have free will to one way analogy for it is certain choices we make limit our free will. So if I choose to get on an airplane, uh, maybe I don't have that choice right now, but uh, <laughs> normal times you can choose to get on an airplane. But once you're on the airplane, your choices are restricted. Uh, you can't just get off the airplane in the middle of a flight. There's certain things you can do while on the airplane, so you still have free will there. Uh, and a another aspect we can talk about with free will is how it's described that it plays out as what we really do is desiring, re accepting, rejecting. Uh, I want this, I don't want that. Uh, and then all of the actions are said to be carried out by the modes of material nature. So I will for my arm to move, but it's not actually me that moves the arm. I want to have the foggiest clue how to execute all the neural actions that are required for the arm to move. All I can do is desire that it happened. We wanted to talk a little bit about uh, creation and the universe uh, and uh, how do Hindus understand uh, all of creation? Uh, is the universe eternal? Was it created uh, at a moment in the past? Yeah, so one unique and defining feature of Hinduism is, is definitely the idea of eternity with cyclical creation and destruction. I uh, mentioned that in an earlier segment. With regard to the the Big Bang, uh, so there's this idea explanation of how creation happens, which you find in the Bhagavatam, and it's 
it's pretty intricate. You have Mahavishnu, who's a form of God, lying down on the causal ocean and exhaling and inhaling. And with every exhale, all of the universes come out of his body. And with every inhale, they all pour, come back into all of the pores of his body. And uh, these are correlated with the creations and destructions of the material universe. So this would be something like all the way back to the Big Bang and then all the way up to the Big Crunch if we were to uh, make the assumption that what science is looking at when it steers into space and when they hypothesize about the Big Bang and the expanding universe that maybe it's all going to contract again into a Big Crunch. Uh, if we were to make the assumption that that's talking about what the Bhagavatam is talking about, then those would map onto one another. And then you get further creation from that. It's, it, it gets quite fantastic from there. Uh, there's a Lord Brahma governing. I don't know how much I should get into the explanation of how the cosmos exists. Yeah, are these taken generally to be metaphorical, or 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 is is there a belief that these are uh, substantially real? These uh, these explanations. Yeah, there's there's a belief that this is actually how things are going on. And if someone wanted to say this is too fantastic, I can't believe you actually believe this, then my reply would be. Um, there's actually only one fantastic claim, which is the existence of God. Once you've assumed that God exists, you have a being full of the potencies that are capable of producing all of this. That the real fantastic worldview is atheism, where every step is a miracle. Right. Yeah, I, I, I think. I mean, I, I, I certainly, I'm, I don't ascribe to uh, to, uh, to Hindu theology. I'm a pretty sort of main, mainstream Catholic, but um, the the really crazy stuff is atheism. Um, I, I don't think any theist is is really crazy. Meaning that you know, just the existence of anything in itself is a miracle. Is a remarkable, astonishing thing. I'm open to all kinds of ideas, except the idea that there is no God, which which I think is crazy. Uh, so, um, there's been a lot of, um, uh, obviously advances in cosmology and in basic physics over the past century, uh, particularly for example, in quantum mechanics and general relativity. Is there anything in Hindu theology that reflects on, on those advances or, or relates to them? As an example, um, Werner Heisenberg, who's a, a physicist who was very important in the development of quantum mechanics commented that the phenomenon in quantum mechanics of uh, collapse of the quantum waveform, that is that quantum systems exist in um, uh, multiple states of potentiality and with measurement or observation coalesce into a single actuality, uh, really is a, is, is a, is a reflection of uh, Aristotle's uh, understanding of change, of potency and act, uh, and uh, that, that Aristotelian metaphysical perspective uh, was embraced by Thomas Aquinas. So it's, it's really kind of part of the Catholic or Christian way of looking at metaphysics. And um, uh, is there anything that, that, that you can think of in modern physics that has a parallel in, uh, in Hindu metaphysics or uh, Hindu theology? Yeah, the best person to have on for this discussion would be Akundadi. I'll I'll see if he can come on your podcast sometime, and because he's really good at this kind of thing. Oh sure. Because uh, I, I look at this kind of stuff, but I'm not always looking back to the tradition to see where it's found there. Like with regard to quantum physics, my favorite explanation of that is that it's like the the pixels in a video game don't render until you actually move the screen there, or maybe it renders a little bit ahead of time so that it can predict where you're going to move and not have any lag. So similarly with quantum physics. If you're not looking at the particle, it hasn't selected a state. 
this is done in computer processing and, and video games to save on computational power and perhaps something similar goes on with the universe. Uh, of course, we would put the observer in every living entity, not just in humans. Um, so that changes things somewhat. But I guess some living entities aren't actually affected by the change in state of certain quantum functions. So the wave state might not change until the human looks at it in many cases. I'm not sure where, where you'd find that in the metaphysics of the tradition. I mean, we have this idea of the material energy that that God is the largest and the smallest. So he's both containing the universe and inside of every atom in the universe. So, and everything's going on by the Sanskrit word Shakti, by, by God's powers and energies. So with that, miracles and all sorts of things are possible. But with that, uh, matter is also, sure, it's, it's something physical following physical laws. But um, I've heard people argue that simulation hypothesis is supported by the Vaishnava worldview. I'm not sure exactly what quotes they base it on, though, but it, it does seem to make sense because the idea here is that the material universe is meant to deliver sensory experiences to living entities in order to have effects on their consciousness, which ultimately bring them back to God and help them overcome their selfish desires and so on. So if you, th- if you see the universe as meant for that purpose, then matter could be explained as rather than being something out there that exists independently of anything else, it's, it's like an algorithm that governs the deliverance of experiences to living entities. So it, it, it sounds like it's kind of an idealism of sorts. Um, what really exists is mental and that the, the physical is just a state of mind. Yeah, I used to think that idealism meant that things only exist in minds, but after studying it a little bit more, I think that it, it could be compatible with the Vedic, Vedic worldview. I mean, the view I had of idealism was that it's, you know, if that was the view, I guess it would be patently absurd because there has to be something out there that we're all both interacting with because uh, we have a shared experience of reality. So there's got to be something out there. Uh, I guess idealism is just saying that the foundation of what's out there is in the mind of God or something of that sort. Yeah, the um, I, I was always fascinated by the consilience of Plato's view of forms, that there's a realm in which sort of the, the ideal representations uh, of things or the, the ideal, ac- I'm sorry, the, that what, what, what we're seeing are representations of an ideal actuality that exists in a separate world. And um, uh, St. Augustine uh, said that that separate world was God's mind, that reality is essentially a thought in God's mind, uh, and that we are thoughts in God's mind. And I, just, I just thought that was a fast, fascinating way to look at it. But of course, being, uh, being a Thomist, uh, my commentary on that would be, it may very well be that reality is a thought in God's mind, but that God is a Thomist. So that's, that explains why Thomism work, worked so well. Um, so um, Right. That does relate to the, the Hare Krishna view, which is um, that there's the original pure spiritual reality, which has everything you find here, but in a pure state, whereas in the material world where we are, it's the perverted reflection. So any kind of form or pleasure or anything you might chase or experience here is a perverted reflection of something that exists in a pure state in the spiritual world. That, that, that seems to be a perspective that a, a, a lot of religious faiths have. There, there's a very much a, an aspect of that in Christianity, that there's a, a kind of an, uh, an ultimate perfection, which is God, and that um, his creation is, um, uh, is a limited version of that ultimate perfection. 
from your own perspective, Arjuna, uh, or from the perspective of the Hindu faith, uh, what do you think about the intelligent design movement in science uh, in the Western world? I, I think it's awesome. I'm, I'm a big fan of the Discovery Institute and you know work like Michael Behe and Stephen Meyer and, and your own work on arguments for, from the brain for consciousness not being caused by the brain. This idea that 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 Prabhupada, who's the founder of the Hare Krishna movement in the West, gave an argument which uh, a philosopher called Joe Schmidt told me we could call a construction argument. Uh, so a construction argument that Prabhupada used is that the creator has to have all the qualities of the creation. So the creation can't have any qualities that aren't found in the creator. So you know, an analogy for this would be that you know, the production of a table requires various ingredients you need to have. The, the builder needs to have more knowledge than is required to build a chair. Not, not the, you can't build a chair or a table having only the amount required to build the chair. You need to have more knowledge. You need to have more wood because there'll be wasted wood. You need to have a certain amount of tools. And without all those things, you can't build the chair. So I guess this is like the argument from uh, sufficient reason. Mm-hmm. So this, is a, this was an argument used in the tradition to argue for personal God because I have personal qualities. I have a name. I have a form and so on. Therefore, God must also have a name and a form and so on. And this, he also used this argument against atheists that, you know, we've got all this material world with all these creatures in it, and it, it has to come from a source. Prabhupada also used an arg- argument. He called it life comes from life. Uh, you, you know, these, these rascal scientists, Prabhupada would use words like that. He'd, he'd spe- speak in, in quite like name-calling ways to the rascal scientists who are de- deluding the public. Not, not, it's not an anti-science thing. Obviously, if scientists are building bridges and saving lives and all that sort of stuff, that's awesome. But when they want to tell us things like matter explains life, then that, that's nonsense. And he would, he would challenge them, you know, you know, go in your lab and put some chemicals together and produce life. Uh, and then you can come and tell me that, li- that life comes from matter. Yeah, it, it, see, it seems to me that the, the, the better science gets, the more it seems to resemble engineering. Uh, so I, I'm a big fan of engineering. I like houses that stay up and bridges that stay up and thing, things like that. Um, a lot of the theoretical science is absolutely fascinating stuff, but the um, metaphysical claims made by quite a few scientists, the materialist or atheist claims, I think are badly misguided. Yeah, this this reductionist worldview is really good at a lot of things. Like if you get smashed up on the motorway, they're really good at putting you back together because musculoskeletal stuff is really mechanical, uh, and the engineering principles reductionism works well for that kind of thing. But they really fail at, at looking at the bigger picture. Like my wife's a trained naturopath, and uh, we also have a naturopath we go and see. And there's so many things that can go wrong with the body. You go to a doctor, and they'd be like, "The tests come back fine," and you're like okay and then you do some research go to a naturopath and they'll they'll look into this whole bigger picture of how one thing is causing another thing and look at the organism as a whole and somehow that gets missed by this reductionist picture yeah yeah i think the uh, reductionism which so often uh, accompanies materialism uh is a really impoverished way of way of looking at things uh it, it's it's not even internally consistent So we, we've we've talked about a lot of stuff about theology and and metaphysics uh, and ethics uh, and science and I just wanted to get into some sort of cultural contemporary issues. What's your feeling about cancel culture uh, that's going on now in uh, the Western world? Uh, so I think cancel culture is is a bit of a worry. I mean, this idea that we should punish somebody for 
something they put on Twitter ten years ago is is really childish. Uh, also, like I'm a, I'm a big fan of Jonathan Haidt, who's who's who did. Um, I think it was his co-author went through a de- period of depression and then studied cognitive behavioral therapy to get out of it, and then you know went back to working as a professor and they came to realize that the the principles of cognitive behavioral therapy that teach you how to be resilient and happy uh, and successful they're totally contradicted by this woke culture that like it, it's it's it, if you were to understand cognitive behavioral therapy and want to make people unhappy unresilient and unsuccessful then wokeism is basically the the philosophy you you teach people we could get into that more or we could just point people to uh coddling the american mind by jonathan Haidt. yeah i mean the the wokeism um uh, there's so much bad in it, and uh, a, a major part of the bad is that there's no way in wokeism that anybody gets any happier or any better. It just leads to more to more anger and more fighting and more losing, and it's it's just a terrible way to terrible way to run a culture. I think what's happened with a lot of these social justice movements is they were fighting genuine problems, and they won those battles. And after winning those battles, they then had to continue to justify their own existence. So yeah, sure. they were no longer fighting genuine bat- battles. They were just, you know, just justifying their own existence and actually creating problems. Yeah, I I totally agree. I I I think the social justice, the whole social justice thing, really is a is a is a is a branch of Marxism. I, I think of Marxism as sort of distilled evil. It's uh, it's it's what you get when you bring everything evil into in, into one place at one time. Uh, how do you feel about uh, a lot of uh, questions of social ethics nowadays? For uh, for example, abortion, euthanasia, a lot a lot of the life issues. Are there viewpoints in Hinduism that reflect on that, or do you uh, do you have, do you have personal viewpoints on that? Yeah, I don't know if I can speak for Hinduism broadly. As as I said earlier, H- Hinduism is like a category. It's like saying the Abrahamic traditions. So, you know, we, we wouldn't ask what do Native American religions or what do uh, Ab- Abrahamic religions say on this particular social issue. Even within Hare Krishna's, you're going to get a diversity of views. But the general view you would get on abortion, say, uh, is that abortion is, is is murder and it's not okay. There's one Hare Krishna thinker uh, known as Dr. Howard Resnick, who I've had on my channel a few times. I've listened to him give a talk on it. And I, I quite like his views, which is that in some extreme cases, abortion would be a right where either due to the mental health of the mother or due to medical reasons, the abortion could be necessary. Uh, so it's not that we should ban all abortion. But the other thing is you could also ask a question of, there's actually um, Tulsi Gabbard. Uh, she's got a Hare Krishna background. and Oh, she does? Really? Okay. Quite, her view is actually a little bit uh, anachronistic from the Hare Krishna tradition, but she gives a good argument for it. And I think it's justified, which is, if uh, if the government can tell you today that you can't have an abortion, then tomorrow it will be able to tell you that you can't, you must have an abortion. And this is not the kind of power we want to give to government. So just because we think something is wrong uh, and shouldn't be done doesn't necessarily mean that the government should go around policing it. That's that's true, but and that that's kind of that gets to the personally opposed uh, argument in abortion that uh, Mario Cuomo, the f- former governor of New York of uh, New York, said years ago that uh, he was personally opposed to abortion, but he didn't believe that it should be legislated. the The problem I have with that is that I I could certainly see the personally opposed viewpoint, for example, in flavors of ice cream. 
that is that I'm, I'm personally opposed to strawberry ice cream because I don't like it, but I don't think there should be any laws regarding whether you can have strawberry ice cream or not. But abortion is a fundamentally different thing. Uh, to be personally opposed to abortion but feel that it should be legal is like being personally opposed to rape but thinking that it should be legal. That is that there's something intrinsic ab- about abortion that's not just a matter of personal preference. You know, there's, there's another life involved. So if, if abortion is wrong, it's wrong for everyone. Or if it's not wrong, it's not wrong for anyone. Yeah, I, I would go to consequentialism here, which would be to ask the question of if we do have abortion laws, are people in general better off? And if we don't have abortion laws, are people worse off? And there might be a certain uh, happy balance somewhere, or maybe maybe it's never a happy balance, but there might be somewhere in the middle where it's sort of better. Like in New Zealand recently, they brought in really liberal abortion laws, which are like basically up until like two weeks before the baby's born or something disgusting, you can do an abortion. I don't know exactly where they drew the, draw the line, but you know, it, a lot of countries will have it up to like 26 days or, or a certain number of days from conception, although they worked that out when conception was roughly based on the size when they do the scan. And that's obviously less sinful. You know, if you've got basically like a, a fully formed baby and you're killing that, that's obviously worse. And um, But it could be the case that having blanket no abortion laws actually means that a lot of women go and get dodgy abortions from dodgy clinics. And that might be worse than just having sl- somewhat moderate abortion laws. Sure. I, I speak on the abortion issues at my medical school, and it's, it's a rather controversial issue, as, as you can imagine. What I've, I've come to believe is that the um, pro-abortion viewpoint depends critically on what I really feel are misrepresentations of uh, the scientific and, 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 and social facts about abortions. So what I try to do with the medical students is move away from the ethics a little bit and just just talk about the science and the sociology. Uh, for example, I think the, a, a powerful scientific argument can be, can be made that science or that life begins at conception, that saying that, a, that an embryo is, is not a new human life just doesn't make any scientific sense. So life begins when the firm and when, when the sperm and the, and the egg meet. And there's no history or there's, there's no question that historically, uh, abortion, at least in in the United States, uh, discriminates racially. Uh, a, a black child is three times as likely to be aborted as a white child. Around the world, uh, girls uh, are aborted at a much higher rate than boys are. Uh, there's actually been a femicide in Asia of about 100 million girls over over the, over the past 50 years, um, and disabled children are s- selectively aborted. That that might be turning though with the increase of woke culture and men getting discriminated against. Um, Maybe it'll flip the other way. Uh, it could, but I, um, I, um, there, you know, it's I, maybe, maybe. But um, uh, so what I try to do in discussing abortion is is just ask that we stick to the facts. And when when the facts are laid out there, it's an awfully hard thing to defend. Uh, you know, defending abortion basically presupposes that you don't really understand it. I think uh, so because if you really understand it, most people would say it's terrible. I think being honest about these things would really help. Like, like some abortion clinics that, or you know, places that women go when they're pregnant and they don't know what to do, they show them the ultrasound and show them 
that they can see the form and then they think, oh, I couldn't kill this. Sure. Uh, or, you know, just explaining to them like that the facts about the women who have had, had abortions, often this is the psychological effect it has on them versus women who don't, in your situation, who haven't had abortions, this is what their lives have looked like and just give them the facts sure. so they can make up their mind where, as opposed to being politically motivated and, mm-hmm. and saying, you know, we're going to hide all the downsides of abortion or hide all the downsides of not having abortion because of our political motivation and we want to persuade them of a, a predetermined viewpoint. Um, how how do you feel about euthanasia, and is there any um, any sense in Hinduism that that uh, any Hindu perspective on on euthanasia? So euthanasia is is rejected. Uh, it's even rejected for animals. Like uh, we have a couple cows on our property. Uh, we've got ten acres here, and so, uh, it's, it's a cow protection is a big thing for Hindu culture, and particularly for Vaishnavas. And you don't kill the cow even when it gets old. Whereas in you know the West, when the cow gets to a certain age, you just kill it because it's 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 frail, it's old. And so if you have an old cow up by the the road and people see it, they they don't see old cows. They'll think that this is animal abuse. Uh, but they wouldn't think that about your grandma. They wouldn't think, oh, you're keeping this lady still alive. She's so so old and fragile. This is grandma abuse. Mm-hmm. It, it, that it's just this disconnect on how we look at animals from how we look at people. But uh, yet the understanding of why not to kill them or why not to commit euthanasia is that we have a certain amount of karma that we need to live out. And if we don't live it out in this life, we'll have to take birth again in a similar body so we can fully live out the karma. So, you know, if someone's suffering from a horrible disease or mental disturbance, um, there's some reason why that's happening and there's some lesson they need to learn from that. However, there is uh, some scope for suicide, but it's only in a certain way and it's only if your body is based, you know, like someone... If you, uh, Hare Krishna and Mayapur had cancer a few years ago, and she was but cancer was going to kill her. She had months to live, and she was suffering. So she fasted till death. So instead of suffering for a couple months and you know in bed with ridden with cancer, she fasted to death, and then it just only took a week. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is a prescribed method that that Vaishnavas can fast till death. And even uh, at, at people, there's observations of cows doing something similar. That if cows really sick and going to die anyway, they'll, they'll go and sit in a cold river until they die. I think even in the, in the, in the Catholic tradition, um, that in, in, in the, in the terminal stages of life, if, uh, taking nourishment, um, is uncomfortable or painful and it only serves to prolong the process of dying, I think, uh, not taking nourishment is, is considered, uh, an acceptable thing, uh, as, as I understand Catholic ethics, uh, it's not acceptable in the Catholic ethic to do it, to try to die. That is with, with the intent of dying, but if it's to relieve suffering accompanied by receiving nourishment, uh, I think it's considered ethical. It's funny. Um, I just thought about it that we've, we've gone from, you know, having a more balanced view that like, well, at least in India, animals are sacred. You don't just kill them, and uh, people are sacred, but you don't extend their life unnecessarily. But now we want to extend humans' lives as long as possible to the point of spending millions of dollars keeping them on life support. And the moment an animal shows the first signs of being sick, we kill it. Right, right. Uh, whereas <laughs> we've so we've we've taken uh, our desire to prolong animals' lives and put all of that on humans. Uh, I watched a documentary a little while ago in which I think. The, the Harry Christian presenting the documentary, or maybe the documentary itself, was asking the question of, you know, 
is all we're doing with a lot of these medical procedures just prolonging the process of dying or actually we actually helping people? Because you, you see some of the ways some of these cancers are treated and some of the cancer treatments are excruciating. Uh, and then in many cases, the person still dies. You know, so there's this idea in the Hare Krishna tradition that death is inevitable. It's going to come sooner or later. Uh, so we should die gracefully. And actually the purpose of life is to die in a particular way. And, and the goal is to, the, the Sanskrit is antat narayana smriti, to remember God at the time of death. Uh, and that gives us a good destination in the next life. So one way it's described is that only, only God conscious people uh, can leave gracefully. Yeah. Other people who aren't God conscious, they'll tend to be very upset and angry and so on when the time comes for them to die. My understanding of, of Catholic medical ethics is that um, there are two kinds of treatments that patients receive, uh, ordinary and extraordinary. Uh, ordinary treatments would be uh, food and water and um, shelter and clothing and things like that and uh the and hygiene and extraordinary would be medications and ventilators and operations and things like that and that in catholic medical ethics it's it's acceptable to refuse uh ex extraordinary means of operations and medications and things um if it only serves to, to prolong the process of dying um but it's not acceptable to refuse ordinary things such as nourishment and water and shelter and hygiene and so on so basically you could it's okay to take a patient off off a ventilator uh, if they are uh, have no prospect of survival and it just prolongs their 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 suffering to be on the ventilator, but it wouldn't be be okay to starve them uh, or to dehydrate them uh, or to um, you know leave them in their waste or something. That ordinary care is something that every human being uh, has a right to, and it, it is suicide to refuse ordinary care. Um, however, uh, to refuse ex extraordinary means uh, is not suicide and can be and can be quite uh, quite ethical in in the appropriate circumstances. I, I would put some medical procedures and drugs in that category too, where the evidential basis for them is really strong and they have a high success rate. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. Exactly. If, if it's just a matter of taking an antibiotic that doesn't have much side effects that would save your life, correct. Yeah, or or some surgeries, or you know, just something remove something and the problem goes away and it's not going to come back. I'm sure you know of some of those. Then. But we 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 face this a lot in, in patients who who have like, for example, metastatic disease. Uh, you know, if, if you're full of cancer, uh, you could have operations until you die. You know, you just take out every every metastasis, but that, that doesn't really serve any purpose. It doesn't help anyone. It doesn't make them better. It just it puts them through a lot of suffering in the last part of their life. There, there's a, a famous story in our tradition of a great king who he was cursed to die in seven days by a snake bite. Uh, and he was a very powerful king and he, he had some, uh, you know, he could have overturned the curse. He had a deep connection with God and so on, but he didn't. He just saw it as God's mercy that he knows exactly. Most people, they have no idea when they're going to die. So we can't prepare our consciousness to think of God at the time. It could come at any moment. Uh, so therefore we have to spend our whole lives trying to think of God. But he was very lucky that he knew the moment he was going to die. And instead of, you know, getting angry and thinking, I'm going to you know, remove all the snakes from the kingdom. I, I won't be killed by a snake. 
And instead of doing anything like that, he thought this this is this is God's mercy on me, uh, and I'm going to think of God. So he, he went to the bank of the Ganges and he heard from a great sage for seven days and seven nights uh, without stopping to sleep, uh, without stopping to eat or drink. I just heard nonstop while fasting uh, about God and asked questions and was coherent the whole time. So that's obviously like a kind of terminal lucidity thing of, of having some lucidity to bite the body falling apart from not eating. And yeah, this was his response. So that 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 is an appropriate response in in some cases. That, 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 that's an underlying attitude we should have that when the time comes, this this is this is my time and it's meant for me to go. Well, I uh, I I started out as a, as an atheist or at least an agnostic, uh, and I, I really didn't convert to Christianity until until about twenty years ago. And um, part of the reason for my conversion was a friendship I I, I had with a um, Lutheran pastor uh, at the hospital, uh, and he was uh, he pr- provided a lot of the counseling there for patients who were who were dying. And uh, one night uh, during 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 the atheist part of my life, I, w- I was in the intensive care unit and the, the pediatric intensive care unit. And there was a six-year-old who was dying of a brain tumor that I was taking care of, and it was a pretty horrible death. I mean, the the kid was was just the tumor was just destroying him, and, and um, it was like midnight. And this pastor and I were sitting in the nurse's station just talking about about what this child and his family were going through. And I, I said to the pastor, I said, you know, I'd, I'd like to believe in God, but I can't, I can't understand why God would let something like this happen. I mean, this is a nice little kid. His family is lo- lovely people, and he's just going, going through hell. And uh, the pastor said, well, God never said that, that life wouldn't be without tragedy, that life wouldn't be without suffering. Um, he just said that when it happens, he'll, he'll be there with you. That that's when we're close to him is is uh, is when we suffer because at least in Christianity, um, our 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 understanding of God, who's Christ, um, suffered for all of us. So suffering is redemptive of of sorts, despite its horror. Um, and that stuck with me. Just that changed. That actually changed my my understanding of suffering in a very profound way. I, I, I felt that when you when you suffer is when you're closest to God. That changed the way I saw things. Right. Yeah. What, one thing that could be said is the real tragedy is that we're separate from God or experiencing separation from God. And the tragedies that happen in life are opportunities to remember God. And if they weren't there, we might just happily go about our lives and never take shelter of God. So right. that would be an even greater tragedy. Absolutely. When, when, when you look at the, just ordinary human lives, not even considering God, I don't think anybody can can make a credible case that a person who lives much of their life without any adversity, who sort of gets everything they want, is a better person for it. That is, that there, while certainly suffering can break a person, uh, my experience has been that some degree of suffering is necessary for uh, for maturation and for becoming a decent human being. Uh, you know, the offspring of incredibly wealthy parents uh, who gets everything he wants and uh, never has any kind of adversity doesn't usually turn out to be a pretty good human being that that brings us brings up the question of microaggressions that somebody did a microaggression against me and i'm going to get really angry about that rather than use it to deepen my personality right 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 it's it's a, it's a kind of um, arrogance and self-centeredness that is not that's not really healthy well it's turning the whole thing on its head it's 
It's the idea that things that don't kill us make us stronger. That's anti-fragility. So it's not just that they don't that we don't break, it's that we actually become stronger through adversity. Sure. And of course there's a limit to that. You know, like when you're raising your kids, you you let them do somewhat risky things, let them climb climb trees or whatever, but you don't let them injure themselves right. in a way that's gonna hurt them, you know, affect them for life. Right. Profound stuff. Um, I thank you, Arjuna. Uh, my guest has been Arjuna Gallagher, uh, who is the creator of the um, YouTube channel uh, Theology Unleashed. He is uh, a Hindu, and this has been a fascinating discussion. Uh, and I thank you so much. And uh, please, everybody, be sure to go to his channel and to watch his documentary called The Persecuted Saints You've Never Heard Of. Thank you, Arjuna. This has been Mind Matters News. Explore more at mindmatters.ai. That's mindmatters.ai. Mind Matters News is directed and edited by Austin Egbert. The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the speakers. Mind Matters News is produced and copyrighted by the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence at Discovery Institute.